Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It is still Thursday, the 28th of October. If you missed the first hour of Mornings with Carmen, let me encourage you to go back and get the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com. My conversation with Ben Johnson um, covers a bunch of the headlines of the day. We don't want you to miss that. But I really feel like the conversation that we just had with Renee DiResta, um, first of all, she's just so smart and her competencies are across so many areas. Um, And I think it exposes us to the kind of thinking that's going on in the world that may not be from a Christian worldview, but certainly aligns with the way that we see things. And so I think it reinforces um, reality when we have conversations with people who um, are operating out of uh, a deeply intellectual place um, and are also just very articulate in talking about the issues that we face today. So there you go. go. Go and grab that later today. Okay, I have an out-of-this-world headline to lead off with this morning before our friend Peter Kapsner joins us. Um, I feel responsible to read really widely in, in order that um, we can talk about things that other people are talking about in other environments, and we can apply the mind of Christ to those, um, to those conversations. And so Avi Loeb is not a person that you're probably aware of, but... Avi Loeb is the former chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University. He is the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. He is the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at Harvard's Smithsonian Center uh, for Astrophysics. So, I mean, suffice it to say, you know, like, right, a smarty pants. He chairs the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies and... He is on the advisory board of something called the Breakthrough Starshot Project. He is a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. So this is one of the guys advising the President of the United States on science and technology. He also happens to be the best-selling author of a book called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And he has an article in Scientific America where he posits that aliens— are the intelligence that created the universe in a laboratory, and wait for it, out of nothing. So uh, here is um, just a quick excerpt from the article. The biggest mystery concerning the history of our universe is what happened before the Big Bang. Where did the universe come from? Nearly a century ago, Albert Einstein searched for steady-state alternatives to the Big Bang model because a beginning in time was not philosophically satisfying in his mind. Okay, so let's just pause there. There's a reason it's not philosophically satisfying, um, because it, because there is a there there before there was a there here, and, and it's God. Anyway, all right, he doesn't go there. That's where I go. Um, now, there are a variety of conjectures in the scientific literature for our cosmic origins, including the ideas that our universe emerged from a vacuum fluctuation, or that it's... Uh, cyclic with repeated periods of contraction and expansion, or that it was selected by the anthropic principles out of the string theory landscape of the multiverse 
Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's just people just imagining wonderful things, right? Uh, so um, then he goes on, you know, there's, a, there's an infinite number of possibilities, but there can only be like one truth. Okay, that's interesting. So he talks about it's possible that it emerged out of the collapse of matter in the interior of a black hole. And then we come to this. A less explored possibility is that our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced technological civilization. Since our universe has a flat geometry with a zero net energy, an advanced civilization could have developed a technology that created a baby universe out of nothing through quantum tunneling. Now, I don't know what quantum tunneling is. I don't know what flat geometry is. I don't know what zero net energy is, but I am pretty sure this is a guy who recognizes that this just didn't spring into being, that there is an intelligence behind all of this. So you, you caught it right. He says our universe was created. And then he finds it more plausible to believe that aliens created a baby universe out of nothing than, well, frankly, that there is a god. So he actually asserts later in the article, quote, this unifies the religious notion of a creator with the secular notion of quantum gravity. I don't know what quantum gravity is, but I know the religious notion of a creator to which he is alluding. And it is God and the reality of God. So the good news here is that um, this really smart guy Um, with really influential positions at Harvard and the Smithsonian and in the White House, has arrived at the intellectual recognition that the universe has an intelligent creator. The challenge is that he posits aliens as an alternative to the reality of a sovereign creator God. So there you go. Um, I think that Dr. Loeb knows that there's a God. I just don't think he's willing to submit in humility to the God that is. Peter Kapsner is up next. We're going to talk about the intersection of parenting, spanking, and an Amazon algorithm that, well, has got a lot of people buying paddles. That's up next. Your Mornings with Carmen. kids and I pretty much sure he was uh, disciplined as a child himself and so I thought who better to talk with about this headline Amazon algorithm recommends Bible emblazoned spanking paddle the subhead online retailing giant amazon.com has run into problems in the past because of controversial religious products so let me just pause there for a moment is a is a paddle a religious product <laughs> well, I think some people might interpret that way. Before, but before we dive in, I, I, you know, we have to back uh, back up for a second. I'm scan- I'm absolutely scandalized, Carmen, that that you would suggest I did anything in my youth worthy of any oh. kind of discipline. You you've known okay. me long enough to know that I towed the line. I was a perfect child. I knew my Bible verses. Like there, literally, I would come home and my parents would just thank God for me every day that I came in. There there was so, there was no reason for discipline. So, Paul Perot, I'm wondering if you can cue <laughs> up the audio from Peter's dad. 
<laughs> okay, maybe we don't need to go there. Maybe, yeah, maybe my statement lacks evidence, like and, a and, lot and of evidence. regarding the thanking, yes. I think he said something when Peter finally went to sleep. They were thanking God. <laughs> something like that. That might be something entirely Something like fair. the only peace we had in our home was when Peter was asleep. That might be entirely like fair. That. Indeed, indeed. Okay, no, I, I love this about Amazon, right? For, well, first of all, let me just say that um, there are a whole lot uh, cheaper ways to go about this. But here we go. For thirty five ninety five, parents <laughs> who want to discipline their kids, quote, God's way, which please don't start texting me. Oh, uh, you're into a hornet's I'm, nest I'm, already. No, I know. Carmen. I know. I've already, yeah, right. I have already entered into the total hornet's nest of, of the, the, the question about uh, corporal punishment. I get that. Okay. Mm-hmm. For thirty five ninety five, parents who want to discipline their kids God's way can buy a handmade paddle complete with Bible <laughs> verse and free prime shipping from Amazon. It's called the Board of Education Child Discipline Paddle. <laughs> okay, I, should I not be laughing at this? Should I? Yeah. Uh, I you know, I, there's probably a couple angle, angles as to why this has Amazon's <laughs> Choice badge because to, to get Amazon's Choice badge within the algorithms, <laughs> you you have to have uh, a quite a bit of distribution and purchasing going on, and so clearly people there's have some, to be buying. It. There's some nostalgia factor. There has to well, be at this I point, right? From I the, feel like I feel like there's there people are buying this as a I I. I might be wrong, but I feel like people are buying this as like a joke gift. Well, that they're right. I don't like yeah, I mean, they're going to give to their like they're grown now and they're going to give yeah. this to their parents at Christmas. <laughs> I think that's entirely possible. I do think mm-hmm. there's a subset of people who understandably when you and I start talking about corporal punishment would, would might be thinking and again, understandably. Yeah. Carmen and Capsner, you, you guys better uh, not spoil the, the child. You know, don't spare the rod. We got to get back to corporal <laughs> discipline and or in, so, and corporal punishment. Right. But you have. Hey, yeah. you have brothers and sisters. Right? I do. I have one older uh, brother. Yep. Okay. Um, I have one older sister, and I will say that the discipline my sister required was entirely different it is. than, the, it's than not the discipline that I required. All, right. Like, right. no, no, not at all. I mean, Tiana remembers the one time she was ever spanked because it was, you know, like, right. So it's so dramatic in her mind. I can't count the number of times I was spanked because, like, right, it's not, I mean, it's and not, I, right. and it was obviously kind of futile. So um, I do think that when we talk about the discipline of a child, we are talking about kids are being, kids are very different. And the way that kids need to be disciplined is very different. And so please. Please do not hear Peter Kapsner and I in any way suggesting to you that every child should be spanked. Well, that's exactly right. And I think when we look at those passages, and especially the one about spare the rod and spoil the child, or however we understand what Scripture is saying there, when you work within the themes of Scripture, you see that the word rod shows up somewhere else. And especially, I'm sure many of our listeners know the 23rd Psalm, and where where we talk about that as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, we'll fear no evil, and and there his hand will guide us. His rod and his staff will comfort us. And and again, independent of anything we want to talk about, about corporal punishment, we have to ask the question, how is it that the rod and the staff in that context, as the shepherd was wielding it within the valley in the shadows of death, how, how was that a comfort? Because it wasn't a, a terrible comfort for me when I was driving home, and my mother would say, you just wait until we get home, and your father gets home, right? Like, that didn't feel like a, like a comfort. And if you were back in that culture at that time, the staff was something that as sheep were walking through these valleys of these shadows where it was darkness, they didn't know where they were going. The staff was used when inevitably they would fall into a hole or they would follow, uh, fall off the side of the path and would need to be rescued. And so the staff had a little crook or a hook on it and the shepherd could use that to pull the sheep back up onto the path. That's a great comfort because you just think about how many holes we fall into in the, in the context of our life as sheep walking in the darkness of the future, it's a comfort to know that our shepherd, the good shepherd, has a staff that can rec- rescue us. The rod 
was something that was used by the shepherd as well to just sort of gently tap the side of the sheep's cheek when it started straying off the path, hopefully preventing it from needing the the hook or the crook at the end of the day. The rod was just to guide the sheep to stay on the path. And so now I think we do have a conversation about the role of parents, back to what you just said, that we do need to discipline our children. We do need to shepherd our children, and we need to thoughtfully do so because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Every child is a unique image bearer. They need something different. And so I think for parents, it's really hard. I mean, being a parent is really, really hard to think about how to shepherd our kids in this way. But but if we're going to use the Bible to talk about should we shepherd our kids, well, what does it mean to shepherd with the hook of the shepherd's staff and, and the rod of, of the shepherd to guide our kids in the path? These are some pretty big questions, and, and I think they're fun to talk about. While I also will happily buy a board of education from from Amazon <laughs> as part of my Catholic school upbringing, I know that paddle well. <laughs> yeah. All right. So just so that you know, Peter, there's apparently only three left in stock, and I I hope you order one so that you will tell us because it comes with a laminated suggested spanking <laughs> guideline. And That's I, amazing. I, I feel like we might need to know what it says. I okay. Agree. So uh, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, Peter Capser and I are going to talk about Jewish. Witches. Yeah, I don't think you can say those two words together, but au contraire. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, I do love, uh, I, do, I love you out there uh, in, in listener world um, because, like, you text in things that are beautiful like this. The rod was also used to raise the head of the sheep to oh. change its focus from the problems that it was facing to the face of the shepherd. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. I love I that. So that is brilliant. I feel like that person should be my guest and we should talk with them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree with you. I love this one. Did you see that though? Somebody suggested that in the next Faith Radio Share event, we should use the paddle oh, as part of the oh, swag no. bag. I think no, if I buy oh, one of them, there'll be one lucky listener that will send that one to Carmen. <laughs> We're going to be in so much trouble. Oh boy, I, I indeed. Just, anyway, okay, we just, Peter and I are going to begin repenting in just a minute. But Right now, we're going to talk about another headline. Here's the headline, Peter. How some Jewitches, so take the word Jew and the word witches and smush it together. How some Jewitches are embracing both Judaism and witchcraft. Now, let me just pause right there. Isn't the Old Testament like right? This is the this is the book of the Jews. This is their scripture, and it clearly prohibits witchcraft. And so isn't it impossible to embrace both Judaism and witchcraft? It is. And and you and Paul, you forced me to do all this research that I otherwise we would do. never do. So you so you send me these articles and these headlines <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is happening here? And you're you're exactly right insofar as I understand it, is that witchcraft was prohibited and 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 um, viciously so in in some ways, mm-hmm. meaning that uh, you just do not mess with uh, with foreign spiritual gods and beings, and uh, and th- and that's part of why when Saul dis- when, when when Saul lost the role of the spirit in his life uh, through repeated attacks of David and the Anointed One, and God finally took his spirit from Saul, he didn't have a way forward. So he went to the witch of Endor, and in that time, he understandably believed that the witch of Endor would help guide his future. And of course in that story, and there's a lot of dispute about what exactly happened there, but let's take it on face value that the witch was able to summon Samuel from the dead. And Samuel says to to Saul, well, you and your sons are going to be joining me uh, tomorrow, basically. And so there there was a, a pretty substantial practice of witchcraft during biblical times. 
And uh, when you go outside of the Bible then, and, and Jewish uh, scholars and, and Jewish people really take a lot of the, the books outside of the Old Testament scriptures seriously in, in a lot of ways in two specific instances in the book of First Enoch, which is what's called extra biblical literature or literature that's not in the Bible, but still is seen as a, as, a, as a guidepost for how to do life moving forward. And even the book of Jude has references from First Enoch. It says in First Enoch that the spiritual beings, the, the rebellious fallen angels, the same kinds of beings that we see in Genesis chapter 6 that end up uh, with sexual union with the daughters of men, and then the seed is, is birthed into the future, and that's why we have uh, Noah's Ark and the flood and all of that. These same beings, it said in First Enoch, taught the women of that world uh, certain forms of witchcraft within Judaism. And so it was really, it was seen as prohibited, but there there was a precedent there. But not only that, and even more interesting, and I think this gets us into the story, the Talmud is, again, extra-biblical Jewish literature. It's a collection of writings that Jews find uh, pretty sacred in the sense that it's rabbis who have interpreted the biblical text in a variety of ways and expounded upon it. And within the Talmud, there are guidelines for how not to and how to practice witchcraft. And so witchcraft for for negative purposes like curses or something like that is fully prohibited, but it does have, believe it or not, the Talmud has space for the kind of witchcraft that would offer blessings and healings, thus leading us into the article. I don't know if you caught the paragraph in the article where the this, this Jewish witch said, well, I'm not practicing evil things. I'm actually practicing beneficial witchcraft. And as far as I understand it, Jewish tradition allows me to do that. And she's probably not wrong in some ways if you interpret the Talmud in, in a certain uh, in a certain way. So it's pretty intriguing. And maybe the last part about this, uh, Carmen, is that the Bible really does, it, it is a supernatural document on so many different levels. And what I mean by that is that even our faith, we claim that the work of Jesus, what it did is it reconciled us relationally to God, to an actual being that isn't within our sort of daily natural sphere, this immaterial being. And and so our very claim of our faith talks about the fact that we're engaged in the spiritual realm. So there's a lot to swim around in here. I am not, of course, advocating for any kind of witchcraft. I'm, I'm explaining why somebody may not, when, when you dig into it more, they've probably done their work and they say, no, I think this is okay. It's clearly not okay. But but there's more to it that's going on than just somebody's like, oh, I read a, a Wikipedia article and now I know how to be a witch. There's there, mm-hmm. We're talking thousands of years of tradition here. Yeah, I, I appreciate that um, this the people that are interviewed for this article like they are very serious about they what are. they're doing. Yep. And so I think there is there is an opportunity to engage in a depth of conversation um, related to syncretism, because that's what's going on here. Right. The attempt word, yep. to yep. to take um, Judaism and to take witchcraft and to merge the two. I, d- I thought it was really important that they maintain this clear separation between what they describe as Jewish ritual and magic um, or witchcraft, quote, I don't try to reconcile the two at all. So what they're talking about is being Jewish and being witches. Right. And so I just think that in terms of a conversation about identity, um, this is, a, a, a you know, and belonging and purpose, all of those things. I think that this is a helpful window um, into the way that we have compartmentalized our spiritual practices and beliefs. Um, I I know Christians, people who would say, you know, I'm a Christian, but they're also reading their horoscope. For sure. Oh, gosh. And and with some some level of believing heart. 
Um, I mean, and I know Christians who, you know, they they claim to be Christians, but they also have dream catchers hanging in their houses or on their rearview mirror, and they believe that something's happening there. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that, like, they're I, – I don't – I mean, although you and I started out with, you know, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, right, The with but using this word Jewiches, which is merged in this religion news service headline – I think the reality is these people understand themselves to be fully Jewish and fully witches. They do. Indeed. And so I think it's a good opportunity for us to maybe look in the mirror and say, where are the places in my life where, although I say I am I am fully Christian, I am also practicing as if I am fully well, something else. Mm. No, no, well said, um, Carmen. I know so. we got to run, but just quickly on that part of it, that the, the syncretism blends itself into our lives in a variety of known and unknown ways. And I think to be awake to that fact really helps us to be more single-minded in our focus on following Jesus and just being a Christian as our identity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Indeed. All right. Hey, we love talking with you, but Lee Strobel is up next, so we got to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I will okay. yield. I will yield we to that. We love you, man. Yeah, talk love to you Love you, soon. man. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll be right back. All right. There's a big provocative question out there for each and every one of us, and that is, what happens after I die? We all know we're going to die, but what happens after we die? You all know Lee Strobel. You know the case that he has made for the cross, the the case that he has made for Christ. In his new book, he makes the case for heaven. He's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Lucado. When Mordecai learned that the Persian king had issued a decree to kill the Jews, he urged Esther to reach out to the king. Esther reminded Mordecai that if she went into the throne room uninvited, the king could have her head. Mordecai responded with the greatest one-paragraph call to courage ever spoken by a human tongue. He said, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you are silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai knew this. Relief will come. What he said to Esther, God says to you, you were made for this moment. This is Max Lucado. Joining us uh, is Lee Strobel. You already know him. He's an author. He's a journalist. Um, he is heading up an apologetics effort uh, in in the world, and he brings us um, a real gift today, and that is his new book, The Case for Heaven. Lee, welcome back. Well, thank you. Great to be with you again. It's wonderful to have you. So I would uh, I would appreciate if you would simply tell us the story, two stories, actually, the Saturday yeah. afternoon that you lost your friend Bart and... Mm-hmm the um the reality of your own brush with death yeah i was a a kid uh i don't know about 11 10 11 years old and uh, my friend bart and his brother and i were playing on a playground on a saturday and at a um, uh, elementary school and then at the end of the day we had to go home so i got on my bike and headed south he got in his bike with his brother and headed west but his foot slipped off the pedal of the bike and he went into an intersection and was hit by a truck and he was killed. He died in his brother's arms. 
And, uh, you know, back then in the 1960s, uh, they didn't send counselors into schools to deal with uh, kids who are wrestling with issues that rise from something like this. Uh, We just had to kind of wrestle with it. And it, it was my first real brush with someone I knew who died. And it got me thinking about these things. And then 10 years ago, uh, I almost died. Uh, my wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor. She called the paramedics. I woke up in the emergency room, and the doctor looked down at me and said, uh, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And then I went unconscious again. I, I had an unusual medical condition called hyponitremia, uh, which was a severe drop in my blood sodium level. And um, so I hovered there between life and death for a while until the doctors were able to save my life. And it's a very clarifying experience, you know, to be close to death. It, it really, um, it really clarifies uh, what do I really believe? You know, I was a Christian. I, I, I believed what the Bible teaches about the afterlife. But then, you know, even at, at those moments, you have questions like, well, yeah, but is it realistic? Does it make sense? Is it consistent with science? And uh, that was kind of the seed that eventually resulted in my new book, The Case for Heaven. And that's. Uh... Particular, in particular, what I really appreciate, Lee, because it it actually matters less what I believe. Mm. It matters what is true. Yes, exactly. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference between, you know, what I might imagine whimsically about what happens after we die and the truth of the matter. And so I want to talk about that because you really present, you know, what you discovered, these independent reasons for believing what the Bible claims to be true about both heaven and hell. So maybe just reinforce that for folks. Like, are there good independent reasons for believing what we believe? There really are. Um, And and I was really quite amazed by it. Um, One of the big areas I investigated, uh, it it was the area of science and near-death experiences. And I went in as a skeptic of this. I thought, okay, near-death experience, that's kind of a new-agey thing. Well, I found there are 900 uh, scholarly articles published in scientific and medical journals on this topic over the last 40 years. This is a very well-researched topic. And what I looked for was corroboration. How do I know that these people really had experiences where their consciousness continued to live on after their clinical death? And, uh, and I found numerous cases that I cite in my book um, of, of cases where people saw things or heard things after they were clinically dead. Um, where their their consciousness, their spirit, their soul survived the clinical death of their physical bodies. All right, let's um let's tell one of those stories, and I want you to tell sure. the story about the person who is physically blind. But I want to tell people yeah. um, who are listening, hey, we do have copies from Zondervan to give away today. And so if you want to enter the drawing for the copies of Lee Strobel's The Case for Heaven we're giving away today, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. All right, Lee, the near-death experience that you did some research on um, yes. the person who is blind. Yes, uh, there's actually 20, 21 cases of people who are blind, most of them since birth. Uh, who were able to see during their near-death experience. And the example I give is Vicki, who was in a car accident. She was uh, um, uh, clinically dead, and yet she said, I was actually alive the whole time. My consciousness was alive, and I was able to see. She said, I was able to watch the resuscitation efforts. I saw people for the first time. I saw trees. I mm. saw birds and flowers. And then, and then when her spirit returned to her body and she was revived, she was blind again. And a medical researcher said, this is medically impossible. 
Um, and yet we have numerous cases like this, um, which I believe are corroborative that indeed, um, when we die, our consciousness, our spirit survives our clinical death. And this is what uh, Apostle Paul said, that uh, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Um, Jesus told the repentant criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that means that there are two phases to heaven. The first phase is when we die, we our consciousness separates from our physical body, and we go to be with Jesus in, in paradise or apart from him in Hades. And then ultimately, at the end of history, when Jesus returns, then we're reunited with our resurrected bodies. Uh, then we go through final judgment, and then we spend eternity in a very physical place, uh, whether heaven or hell. So um, this is very corroborative of the biblical teaching that, indeed, um, neuroscience is telling us that these near-death experiences are real. In fact, The Lancet, the great uh, medical journal in England, carried an article that said that all of the alternative explanations that try to explain away near-death experiences fall short. None of them are able to explain them all away. So this, is, this was really surprising to me. And and so encouraging because well, yes. it, it's so encouraging. These stories are so encouraging. The book is The Case for Heaven. Lee Strobel is the author. I want to encourage you to um, visit with Lee online at leestrobel.com. Um, we, when we come back from a very brief break, I'm, I'm going to ask Lee what he learned about reincarnation, why he has two chapters on hell in the book. Um, well, and eventually what he wants on his tombstone. Yep, because we're all going to die. All right. This is a conversation about death, but it's a conversation about life eternal life. It's a conversation about the case for heaven. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing for the copies we have to give away today. We'll be right back. All right, we're talking with Lee Strobel. Um, We are talking today about his new book, The Case for Heaven. Um, I also want you to check out what's happening at Colorado Christian University, where Lee is heading up the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. You can find more information about Lee and all he's up to at LeeStrobel.com. Lee, let's talk about what you um, what you discovered in your investigation and your research on the topic of reincarnation. Yeah, you know, there are millions of people that believe that... Uh... We work off our karma from our bad karma from previous lifetimes over a succession of lifetimes. And it's actually, there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, reincarnation. People think, oh, yeah, yeah, you just, you live through a bunch of lifetimes and then you end up in nirvana or heaven. No, nirvana is described as what's left after you blow out a candle. It's, It's the extinguishing of yourself. That's the goal of reincarnation is you are extinguished forever. Um, so that's a, a typical uh, misunderstanding. The, the other thing is reincarnation is actually the absolute antithesis of Christianity. And, and why I say that is because Christianity is the only world religion that's based on grace. We can't earn our way to God by trying by being really good people. It's a free gift of grace that we receive. Um, and um, yeah, reincarnation says not only do you have to work your way to God, you can't even do it in one lifetime. You've got to do it in a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand lifetimes, and then maybe you won't be good enough. And so it is the complete antithesis of Christianity. Besides which, if, if I'm in this lifetime and I'm going through suffering and people say, oh, you're just working off your bad karma from a previous life, how fair is that? I don't know what I did in my previous life. How do I know what I did wrong? How can I improve? Um, mm. So there's a lot of internal inconsistencies. There's also a... Um, 
um, disincentive to help people and, and ch- give charity because if someone is suffering, well, golly, you don't want to help them because that's going to short circuit their working off of their bad karma. So the best thing you can do is let them suffer. Uh, whereas Christianity says, you know, reach out, help people who are suffering. So uh, I just found it that it didn't have internal consistency. And uh, and I don't think it's very livable. It doesn't make sense to me that I would be working off bad karma that I don't even know what I did in a previous life. So you have two chapters on hell in a book on heaven. Um, yeah. I understand why you have two chapters on hell, but but why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I just felt like if I'm going to do a book on the afterlife, I've I've got to deal with the question of what about. What about hell? And we talked about near-death experiences. About 23% of people have hellish experiences um, when they're out-of-body experience. Um, so, um, and there's been a lot of aberrant teachings about hell in recent years, especially among younger pastors. Uh, one of them, universalism, that we're all saved in the end. Adolf Hitler's going to spend eternity with us in heaven. Um, and then uh, the other one that's, I don't think, quite as serious, but it's become very common is a teaching called annihilationism, which means that those who are unrepentant, um, instead of spending conscious eternity in hell, uh, are snuffed out of existence at the time of their death or shortly thereafter. And uh, John Stott, the famous evangelical leader of the 20th century, embraced this before he died. Um, And so I I consider it a secondary issue. I don't think it's a heresy necessarily. But um, And frankly, one of my surprises in my investigation, you can build a very good biblical case for annihilationism. The problem is, in my opinion, it falls short. It's, it's not good enough. And, uh, but I spell out the arguments on both sides. In fact, I was interviewed by a reporter for a secular publication, and he told me, he confided to me and said, by the way, I'm an annihilationist. Thank you for telling our story and for Mm. accurately presenting our side of things. I I understand you don't buy into it, that you believe it falls short. I get it. But thank you for telling our case. So I tried to do that because I think it's important. Uh, There's a lot of pastors out there who are secret annihilationists. They're afraid they're going to lose their job if they um, come out of the closet, so to speak, and say, I'm an annihilationist. Um, And they very well might in certain denominations. But, you know, I consider it a secondary issue, and, and, and again, I, I just don't believe it's, it's sufficiently supported by Scripture uh, for us to embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so, Lee, let's, um, uh, let's talk about a couple of other things. I, I wish we had, like, two hours to talk. <clears throat> um, because there's a question that I think you and I, as responsible Christians, need to sort of publicly ask and answer. Okay, if, if heaven is real and hell mm-hmm. is real— how do I get to heaven, and how do I avoid going to hell? Yeah, and you know that, the thing about that is the Bible's very clear. Um, uh, it, it talks about God's offer of grace. The, the biblical teaching is that we're sinners; we've all fallen short of God's uh, commands and the way He wants us to live our lives. I think we'd all admit that. Um, and yet, Jesus, God in His love, wants us to spend eternity with Him. So He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man who went to the cross to pay the penalty we deserved for the crimes that we've committed and the, the, the sins that we've committed. And he offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. Um, you know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we deserve, what we've earned um, from, uh, from our sin is death, which is separation from God for eternity. That's hell. But then the rest of the verse says uh, the free gift, free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And so, um, you know, anybody, anywhere, in any culture, at any time that turns to the one true God, I believe, um, based on verses in, in Hebrews and, and Jeremiah, uh, God will find a way to help them um, um, uh, come to the point of, of deciding, do they want to receive this free gift or not? And that's the ultimate question. And so if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, I, um, I, I want to go to heaven and I've never, I've never done this business with God. I've never turned to mm-hmm. him and acknowledged yeah. the reality of my sin and, and acknowledged the reality of the free gift of his grace in Jesus. There's nothing that Lee and I want more today than for you to, um, on your knees, you know, it doesn't, it, actually the posture doesn't matter. What matters is um, the posture of your heart before God. Yeah. And just saying, I, I want to spend eternity with you. And I recognize that Jesus is how I get to do that. So we just invite you to um, to receive that good gift yeah. of, of God's grace today. So, Lee, yeah. um, um, understanding what is after this life affects dramatically mm-hmm. how we understand and live the life we have here and now. So why don't you yes. address that? Yeah. I mean, this did for me, this investigation I did, which took several years, uh, really deepened my faith. And it gave me confidence. You know, I interviewed Luis Palau, the great evangelist, um, shortly before he died. He knew he was dying. And um, I I spent the day with him. And I have a chapter in my book describing that conversation because he knew he was headed for heaven shortly. And he even talked about, here's this great evangelist that shared Jesus with a billion people in his lifetime. And he started to have doubts at the end of his life. Am I going to heaven or not? And uh, Satan tends to whisper in your ears at times like that. And, uh, um, and yet the Bible says in First um, John, it says, uh, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you in a sense of confusion or, or uh, anxiety about where you stand with him and where you're going after you die. It says we can know. And I think part of knowing is, um, is doing the research and, and seeing that, you know, the biblical teaching really does match up with science, with history, with philosophy, with theology. It makes sense. And that's what I hope my book does in people's lives. You know, we're coming out of this pandemic, and, and um, so many people, 29% of Americans either lost a family member or a friend to COVID. Um, my brother died at the beginning of the, of mm. the pandemic. Uh, so um, people are asking questions. Well, what, you know, it's brought death into our conversation. My wife and I were having lunch recently, and the waitress was about 18 years old, and she started to cry. And we said, what's wrong? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I almost didn't come into work today. We just lost a family member to COVID. And I thought, here's a young woman, 18 years old. I never thought about death before. She's 18. She's got her whole life ahead of her. But now death has come knocking on her family's door. Now she's got questions. Now she's got anxiety. Now she's got apprehension. And I just want to say we can get beyond that. And and we can have confidence that um, when we close our eyes for the last time in this world, we'll open them in the presence of God forever. The book is The Case for Heaven. Lee Strobel is the author. Um, One final question before we let you go. this is going to be like a Halloween exercise for our family. But what uh, what do you want to see written on your tombstone? Oh, golly. I, I think something along the lines of um, he dragged as many people to heaven with him as he could. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Lee Strobel, as always, thank you so much. You guys can find Lee at LeeStrobel.com. We're giving away copies of the book today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. All right, we got to leave it right there. Lee, thank you so much. We'll be thank right back. Thank you, Carmen. God bless.
All right. Um, I don't often suggest things like this, but like The Case for Heaven is a really good like book club book. Um, it's a really good conversational book uh, in terms of getting into the conversations that people want and need to be having about life and death and what comes after death, which for those of us who are Christians is going to be real life. Um, and so if you're list, if you've just been looking for how do I even get into this conversation with others and how do I be confident of the answers myself? Like that's that's really what's going on um, in the case for heaven. Lovely Strobel. All right. That's all the time we've got today. If you missed any portion of this conversation or you want to share it with somebody else, um, it's going to be posted as a podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. You just go to the Mornings with Carmen page and share that link with others. Uh, that's a great way for you to be an ambassador of this show. Um, and of this ministry. All right, we love you. Have a great day. God bless. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.